Good grief. This is pretty much Papa Culture Podcast, ever soldiering on in spite of constant crushing disappointment. Today we're discussing the continuing impact of Charles Schultz's comic Peanuts, its key TV specials and other media. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, not cosplaying as Pigpen despite appearances. David Heatley. Yeah, I'm David Heatley, an autobiographical cartoonist, musician, animation director, and I still consider A Charlie Brown Christmas to be an accidentally perfect work of art. Daniel Lobel. Hey, this is Daniel Lobel, and I am a comedian and autobiographical comic book writer and a genuine blockhead. Daniel Leonard. I'm a PhD student in English and uh, creator of the website Three Nuts, and still have to stuff my blanket into my desk between class sessions. So this episode has been in the works since before this podcast started. As a partially examined life episode, I had thought a few years ago of doing a Peanuts and Philosophy episode. And Daniel Leonard, you had written something for the book Peanuts and Philosophy. And I was especially attracted to your website, Three Nuts. Why don't you tell us about that? It's threenuts.com, just P replaced with three. And uh, the premise is to take the typical four panel structure of a Peanuts strip and strip out the last gag panel that relieves the tension or distracts you from the existential malaise that is transpiring. So it just leaves you with the the raw, dark vision that uh, Schultz does such a good job tidying up. It's kind of funny. I got a chance to look at them before the show. And for some reason, I was thinking to myself, well, where's the missing panel for a while? Because <laughs> to my mind, they're all like that. You know, I guess I never absorbed the cleanup panel too well when I read them. But I, I was like, oh, yeah, this... There's another one that comes to clean this mess up. I don't remember that, but okay. It's funny you say that. I actually had the exact same experience. I went to the site. I was like, oh, cool. Someone collected every single peanut strip. Like <laughs> nothing was missing for me. I mean, the very first strip is, you know, Charlie Brown, how I hate him. So it's like, right. there's no cleanup after that one. I just assume they're all kind of like that. And I mean, I, I have like 10 of the complete volume. So it's not like I haven't read a ton of these things, but I just didn't remember that. It's funny. We both had the same experience. Good old Charlie Brown. Here comes good old Charlie Brown. (laughs) How I hate him. How I hate him. It's perfect. Yeah. I think the last panel, often the joke is itself pretty grim or aggressive, but just by kind of putting a bow on things, like having a a clever turn that's recognizable as a joke, it kind of gives you some emotional distance where he's not like seeking to insulate or kind of have it be in the middle of things. So just an example strip. This is from 1982. Uh, Linus and Lucy with their little brother rerun are uh, teaching him to wave goodbye. And uh, Lucy asks why we do that. Linus says, because for the rest of his life, people will be leaving him. And in the third panel, rerun is just kind of sitting there taking it in. Then in the fourth panel, he says, hello there. And he's smiling like he's kind of deciding to change the situation into something he can handle. But we get that moment of him not yet having figured out how to handle it. And that's what I want to draw attention to with the website. So, David, right. you were saying you have many volumes of this. You became an animator. You've done a bunch of still comics. Can you sort of give your overview of your, your history with this? Yeah, I mean, I definitely grew up absorbing it through the newspaper as a little kid. Grew up watching the Christmas special. Had watched it for the last 16 years with my own kids every year. And I don't know. I mean, to me, the power of Schultz and everyone... This has been talked about before, so I'm not saying anything original here, but this idea that he could split his personality into so many different archetypes 
have them sit in a sandbox together and just start playing and see what came out in like a largely pretty improvised way. You just kind of sketch these things quickly, drew them quickly. So it's just immense like psychological power in the storytelling. If you can even call it storytelling, I'm not even sure what it is. It's more like poems or something. But and then the other thing I love is just how simple it is. You know, obviously that was a function of needing to be that simple for the newspaper strip because the comics pages had been killed down to nothing. It's like, here you go, you get an inch, see what you can do with that. And he brilliantly found something to do with it. But it's just that he's a cartoonist who, like, I really see his handwriting and his drawing are one and the same. They're from the same hand. They're equally expressive. They're equally simple. And they're equally, like, kind of instantly readable. And I, I just think he's just kind of a master at that. Lobel, what about you? Well, I guess what I think resonates with me about Schultz or Sparky's work over all these years and continues to is how ordinary he makes. Charlie Brown is, is him, is Charles Schultz. I mean, it's not based on him, but it's, it is him. I think he had a, a teacher named Charlie Brown, but it is Charles Schultz. And he made the character exceptionally ordinary. He's not great necessarily at anything. He's, he just is. And I guess I kind of see myself in that category to some extent anyway, not when I'm riding high in my head, but on the average day, you know, I kind of like the fact that it's not trying to be anything intellectual. I mean, it has intellectual properties, of course, but it's not, it's not trying to be anything fancy. It's very simple. It's very relatable. And the guy, uh, like myself, doesn't usually wind up on top, you know, but he's got a lot of heart. And I think that's why it still resonates for me. And I think that's why it still resonates for the American or more than the American public, but for the public in general. There's always been this long running stress between why people our age would still be interested in is it's been called the littlest existentialist, you know, that if we can, mm. that there's darkness there. And it's had influences like on Freaks and Geeks and other sort of seminal humor properties where people are foiled again and again. And that's fun. But yet, if that were all that it was, then it would not be the mega, you know, still milking this cow franchise it has become. And especially in these things after he's Charles Schultz's death. And even while, you know, this happiness is a warm puppy, the, the whole, yeah. you know, let's just emphasize the pure joy aspects of it and screw the rest of this. And <laughs> that's what the kids need. I think it's funny that that line comes from Lucy of all characters. But look, I think it's the combination of it being sweet and disappointing. The strips are very sweet. They have an innocence. They're children. We all have that inner child that it indulges, but it's also just the disappointment of life. You know, as your great website, Other Daniel, is uh, illustrating again and again. And to me, that's basically what I'm doing with Fair Enough as well. It's true stories from my life, but they're all fairly disappointing. I mean, I try and then somebody pulls the football away and I get up and try again. And to a large extent, that's what it is, you know, so... I think that's why it's still that cow that they can keep milking as you, is that how you put it? Because we're all that person. Most of us are. I mean, some people are, are really, really confident, I think. And, but I, I think for the most part, we're all struggling yeah, I, to kick that football. I think it's a fascinating question. What the consolations are to telling a despairing story. And in peanuts, some of it is, as you other, other Daniel pointed out, 
sense of personal identification, like you somehow are seen in this character. You're kind of like your existence is is validated as some way normalized. And there's a sense of togetherness, like we're we're all kicking the football in our own way, or this gives us a way to talk about and kind of experience together depictions of our experience. I think those are some of the the strongest positive ways to process the experience besides just deflecting to like an irrelevant gag or when the sweetness isn't coming from the situation itself. Like that kind of pat dismissal is, is maybe more what is frustrating to a lot of us about what happens sometimes in later peanuts and in a lot of the commercialized offshoots. Again, with the richness of this strip is that he has so many characters to choose from. So any mood he happens to be in that morning when he has to face that depressing, blank, empty piece of paper, there is a character expressed that mood. So, you know, I read his uh, the biography about him and there's a phase where he was just in love. He had this crush and then he was having an affair with the woman and just utterly in love with her. And so who does he choose? But Snoopy. Snoopy's going to fall in love now. And it's just Snoopy dancing around and for like several weeks. It's just Snoopy with hearts all around him. And so, yeah, he could never make that a Charlie Brown strip. But, you know, the days where he's feeling bleak, yeah, he, he's got Charlie, Charlie Brown to go to. And the other thing that's so impressive is like how, how he's able to like really embody or breathe life into Lucy, who to me is just such a badass little girl. Like she's kind of my archetype of, you know, the kind of girls I've always liked and I'm thrilled by and just stick it right back to the boys. And the fact that he could like empathize with that and kind of make it believable. I just love that. And he's clearly someone who like loves women, wants to understand them and wants to get inside their heads. And one last thing I'll say, Mark, you pointed me to that article that was like the history of pulling the football and the idea that the whole thing started because Charlie Brown made fun of Lucy for being terrible at football. So then you've got now 50 years of her pulling the football as revenge. That's brilliant. The idea like, and and we forget that, like, no, actually he set this in motion because he was a little dick to her. And that she's she's the one, one time, one time. Yeah, but that's enough. <laughs> See, I always saw Lucy as fairly sadistic in the strips. I, I love mean, it. She s- certainly has heart in some of them. But anyway, back to what you were saying about Snoopy. I think Snoopy is the idealized self, right? That's Charles Schultz is what he wishes he could be, right? That's maybe. I mean, that's not the same as what you were saying. <laughs> that's it's the uncontrolled not rage, but just unbridled joy yeah or feeling just unbridled feeling of any kind right he gets jealous and angry and but yeah he probably is the most joyful one when he's when he's joyful right mm-hmm. i mean the, the origin again another kind of thing that one misses the whole reason he has this fantasy life the whole reason there's the red baron is because charles schultz was thinking man dogs must be bored they just have to sit in the yards they just like have terrible boring lives and so of course if they could fantasize and do all this stuff, they would do that. So that is the, there's a despairing reason behind all that stuff. I always thought that was like, because he said later in life, this always killed me. He was just like, yeah, I kind of wish I could have done more of an adventure strip, like Terry and the Pirates or something. It's like, what? You made peanuts. Like, that's not good enough. But it's like, yeah, he was trying to inject this like adventure strip content into peanuts through Snoopy or something. That's how I, I always read that. But. I mean, the, these repetitive tropes, there's probably just something about the daily comic strip format that you can't rely on anybody to read them in succession. So you can't, I don't know, he would still build a story kind of over multiple strips, but it had to be one that you could come in at any point 
In yeah. fact, I was reading about like the Sunday strips, how the first two panels have to be not necessary because a That's lot right. of papers would print it without that. That's why you have like giant peanuts, you know, on a snowy background and then just Snoopy sitting there and then the pot actually starts or, you know, something that mm-hmm. is yeah. reiterated what's in panel two and panel three because they're just all these weird things about that format and what you could fit in there that he had to play with. Yeah, it's true. And the fact that that would dictate, you know, having a quiet moment or a throwaway moment, the fact that he could do something creative and artistic with that, that you just, you just settle for a second and then you get into the story. It's an accident of some newspaper, you know, spec sheet, but it does change the the character of it or the texture of it. And just the fact that Calvin and Hobbes, that very much has the same like how many different Calvin Hobbes plots are there really? Not that many. Like yeah. there's yeah. let's show some aliens or something and like, oh, it's just Calvin playing. And so <laughs> of course every comic strip is gonna have a set number of things like that. And Peanuts was amazing that it could go that long. And certainly the style changed. And I would say not for the better. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very, when I circled back to this and was talking to Daniel Leonard about doing this a few years ago, I got those full volumes out of the library and just like read, I read straight from the 1950 to about 1982, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then I just couldn't, like, yeah, got too saccharine or I don't know what it was exactly, but like, not funny, not Reagan happened. <laughs> Yeah, you know, but he was definitely, you got to live in that space and figure out how to, you know, I'm going to dredge up this football joke for the 19th time in a row, for the Mm -hmm. the 40th time in a row, but still have some tweak to make on it uh, so that you don't have to have experienced all the others, but you still get something if you have. I don't know. That's that's just a weird creative challenge that is seems unique to that art form. Yeah, I think it requires some kind of meditative Zen approach to what you're making i think it would make me crazy i I don't know i don't know how you could stick with those characters for 50 years i mean i guess he added some new characters in but still yeah i think it would be suffocating but he he seemed to like yeah approach it in a kind of a zen way well definitely the world the mythology has to to build out somewhat that oh now snoopy has five siblings now and they're all different (laughs) you know i think there's seven there's seven siblings has anybody kept up at all? Like I had not, one of my reasons for suggesting this now is because there'd been some revival. It was not because Peter Robbins just died. I just found about that yesterday. It's not like I scheduled this because of that. Mm-hmm. It was because, okay, well, Apple TV is doing more stuff with it. They have a new show. They just released a new special, which I did sit through. And it was kind of as bad as you would expect. I don't know. Has mm-hmm. anyone put yourselves through post Schultz peanuts products? I watched a little bit of that new, uh, the Aldine Sign one, and it's just kind of uh, like in the uncanny valley a little bit with the way that it tries to use the hand-drawn wiggly lines and the kind of flat aesthetic in a digitally animated format that it has like the, the cleanness of kind of copy and paste and the high frame rate. But it, it's kind of like a Paper Mario effect or something. It's like it's not just one thing or the other. and And also some of the children voice actors, I feel, are maybe a little too good, like too trained. You lose some of the authenticity. The only one I watched was whatever that first 3D one, I guess the Peanuts movie. When, when my kids were really little, you know, we took them in the theater and we all like enjoyed it well enough. It didn't really feel that related to the Peanuts I love. But I, I got to say, I wasn't like 
completely disgusted by the 3D animation. Usually, I'm it's like nails on a chalkboard. A lot of these, you know, DreamWorks movies and stuff. But this was like I don't know. There was something at least like some of the line quality was adhered to, or you know, they looked a little bit like some of the toys that he oversaw being produced when he was still alive. So it wasn't like offensive. And then I, I remember Chip Kid doing like media interviews about the movie, and he was like really in support of it and just like. No, yeah, this is peanuts have always been in 3D because there were toys and there were this and there were that and sculptures and and so this really honors that same. So I don't know. He that only lent it a little bit of credibility to me. The fact that he liked it and gave a stamp of approval. But yeah, I think anything else, I, I have no interest in watching. <laughs> I, I would there. have to look back and see if there are like, are there any Linuses that are? It seems that there's either a side view or there's front view. I don't know if there's, what is the, is it three-quarter view? You know, whatever the, the technical animation term. You know, the full range of motion. But there isn't a toy. Like a toy you can turn all the way around. But yeah, you're right. The drawings. Even people that haven't looked at a Peanuts comic in forever, or maybe didn't even grow up reading them like I did. You know, that was like the one comic that I really liked as a kid in the 70s. Dennis the Menace was second, but everything else, pretty much a big stink hole. I would read them out of some habit, but like Fred Bassett is never going to be funny or whatever, you know, Blondie, <laughs> Beetle Bailey, ugh, just a horrible landscape before, you know, Farside and Calvin and Hobbes and a few other notable things showed up. And so Peanuts was the one. I like Garfield. I don't know if that's going to rock the boat too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Putting that aside, the TV specials, right? Those are at least Halloween and Christmas. Yeah. Those just everybody has seen. My kids were so crazy about them. My little boy at age one going, great pumpkin, great pumpkin. And all he <laughs> wanted to do, watch the goddamn great pumpkin. Sign document. He learned sign document before he learned paper. <laughs> so what is it? What is it? Is it the voice acting not being that good? <laughs> like this charm of these particular properties. And it doesn't even work in later things when he was alive. Like, oh, there's a new Charlie Brown Christmas special in the 80s. And like, and it's also taken from the comics, but it's, bad it's Terrible. unwatchable similar to within the comics it's more interesting and real when someone feel, it feels like they are discovering what the work is while they're doing it um, and in the first couple animated specials how to realize the vision in that space was an active problem and and so i think that translates just that energy into it and um i'm not familiar with the plots of all of the things but the central premise of charlie brown christmas that charlie brown is disillusioned with the holiday, he's just searching for meaning in this world that's bombarding him with superficiality, culminating in just like the small, quiet expression of what's something that seems to matter. That's truer to maybe the, the vision of the philosophical, psychological depth of the strip that for me is the heart of it. And the draw when it's at its best is just the complexity of the character's different ways of experiencing and responding to life. It's just like depicting that and depicting how they relate to each other as well. Like that gives it the possibility of exploring deeper philosophical questions once they have personality and character where it, things could matter to them. So Charlie Brown is believable as someone for whom this problem of superficiality matters. I would have trouble believing that like Dennis the Menace really cares about that. It would just be a toss off joke for him to be like trying to get away from mall signs or something. And and then that comes through, I just, I just think more in the, the earlier stuff i would say the same for me it's i've seen these so many times you know dozens and dozens and i know literally like every tick in the actor's voices that were 
basically mistakes and I love them all. They're all just so charming to me. The, the fact that, you know, like Sally says some line like, all I want is my fair share. All I want is blah, blah, blah. It's like she can't even, she's like reading it off a page. Clearly, she kind of barely knows what she's saying. And it is incredibly charming. You see the kid in the studio while watching this thing too. Like it, it kind of shatters the illusion while also keeping the illusion. And I'm also really moved by Linus's speech. Obviously, that's like the centerpiece of the whole thing. I love the history of the special, like the bit I've read about it, that, you know, they wanted to cut that. It was too Christian. Like the whole thing is too slow. It's boring. And, you know, Schultz had to like fight for it. And then the other thing I love is that Schultz, like he didn't like jazz at all. Like one of the producers was driving in his car and heard Vince Guaraldi on the radio. It was just like, this could be a great soundtrack and brought it in. And it was sort of like over Schultz's objection. And to me, it's like the special would be nowhere near as good without that soundtrack. To me, the soundtrack is like perfectly fused with the sentiment, with the children singing. Like it's unimaginable without that music. So it's just to me, it's like a great testament to how collaboration works, especially when people are kind of at odds with each other, that, you know, some amazing thing comes out that never would have happened otherwise if people didn't have like conflicting opinions and aesthetics. You probably know this, but he didn't even like the name Peanuts. That was also put on him. So <laughs> what if we just find out that everything we love about Peanuts uh, had nothing to do with Schultz? <laughs> he, like, <laughs> he didn't even come up with Charlie Brown or Snoopy. He didn't write them. He didn't draw them. In fact, he was never there. Let's stop for a very quick ad break. What would you do if you didn't have high interest loans or credit card debt? Would you move to a new city or start a family? Through Upstart, you can pay off your existing debt quickly with a personal loan so you can tackle your next big financial goal. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score, so rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in just five minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. There is that in terms of uh, early formative influences that religiosity, like that now it's time to get serious. As a kid, like, I don't know what commercialism is. I don't know why I should object to commercialism. But what is the alternative to commercialism? Well, it's quiet contemplation, but it's what is Christmas really about? So that sort of, you know, I was raised Protestant. It was all sort of within in line with my, this is what happens when we, let's just put the laughs aside and be serious now and look up toward God. And one of the things I was reading was, interestingly, he doesn't then go to a church. Like they could have just ended it like that. Like, yeah. no, no, it's, it ends with this sort of togetherness among the, the kids, which has not been really presaged by anything that has happened before since the kids were all pretty obnoxious. And it seems like the normal, the true to the Schultz thing would be for <laughs> just him to go home alone. <laughs> <laughs> and cry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have some, you know, he finds the thing that he lost at the beginning or something, like some small victory to offset. But uh, it doesn't make mm-hmm. 
all the bullies suddenly nice. At the end of this new New Year special, this whole thing is around that uh, Lucy feels like no one will ever love me. And I think something like this might have been taken from the comics that, you know, her grandmother is not going to visit. And so maybe maybe she doesn't like me. Nobody, maybe nobody likes me. But I don't think Peanuts characters, I don't think they wonder aloud, will anyone ever love me? And then the other characters show up and Charlie Brown says, well, I love you. And then all the kids, just like at the end of the... Uh, the Christmas special, they, they, we all love you despite all the obnoxious things that you've done in this. That, mm-hmm. that seemed, you know, to have some of the outward trappings of the Christmas special framing, but without any of the subtlety. I noticed that too in the, in the new special. Um, they both are kind of drawing on that it's a wonderful life kind of ending, like the depressed person is embraced by the loving community that they're just racked with doubt about having. And I mean, it feels like a, like a kind of self reassuring fantasy but with truth to it but it's interesting in relation to schultz being so fascinated by citizen kane and depicting that also through charlie brown film about a man who is also racked with doubt about other people liking him and thus pushing them away and and being kind of defined by isolation that maybe it feels fitting because it's so true to what he would like want to think or to want to entertain that idea of a, a final harmony and final reassurance um, at least in the, the Christmas one, it works. What kind of amazes me is that, you know, Schultz was a Christian, right? And supposedly, I guess, was fairly devout. But it doesn't seem to have brought him relief with his depression. I mean, he just was depressed his whole life. He didn't believe in therapy. And he kind of ridiculed it, actually. And I think he really could have used it. It was very poignant to me reading that biography where he was on a park bench with a stranger, essentially, and got into this whole long conversation about psychoanalysis and does it work? And I wonder if I should do it. You know, it's like he felt freer to talk to the stranger than anyone in his actual life about these like really deep questions he had. Uh-huh. And, you know, you could almost make the case that like, well, he didn't need therapy, he put it all into the work. And that was his therapy. But I'm not sure I totally buy that. Yeah, I don't like that at all. I don't know. Was he happy? I've heard that a million times from comedians. It's like, oh, I don't need therapy. My work is my therapy. And it's like, no, your work is just your problems amplified. It's not therapy. It's just repeating the same negative feelings you have about yourself, about the world over and over again and reinforcing them for yourself and now getting validation from others to help you reinforce them. It's kind of the opposite of therapy, really. I think that's also true with Schultz. Even if he's not on stage, it's through readers. I think that's, you know, a great cop out for people who don't want to do the work of therapy, which is to say, my work is my therapy. I don't think it's ever your work is your therapy unless your work is therapy, perhaps. There's coping that happens through the work potentially. And there's some way of making meaning, making your problems meaningful and helpful to other people as well. But for most people and and for Schultz, it doesn't rid him of his depression. It doesn't make him a happy person. And to the religion question, my understanding is that he stopped attending church as an older adult, like maybe sometime in the 80s, and called himself a secular humanist. Not clear exactly what, what his relationship to Christianity was at that time. He was, I think, devout after coming back from the war and just had like gratitude to life in the universe and God for helping him. But it doesn't feel like he got a lot of consolation from it. And insofar as Christianity enters the comic strips, it, it never really seems to be about the character's feeling better as a result of any beliefs they might have. I mean, the most prominent depiction is the Great Pumpkin, which is kind of ridiculing the futility of 
this like insistent belief without any positive evidence. The way religion functions in the Great Pumpkin, at least, is it doesn't actually give any consolation. It's this kind of belief without any reward, without reason, really. Uh, it's kind of blind belief. I love that special, probably almost as much, maybe as much as the Christmas special. And to me, the whole thing hinges on that moment where Lucy comes and fetches him and puts the blanket around him, brings him to bed. And I would say the Christmas special ends in a similar way, which is it's really about the kids making each other feel better and being there for each other. And so, you know, a story about Jesus's birth could inspire that goodwill, but it's still up to you to actually express it and kind of uh, make sure you apply it to the people around you and have it mean something. It's not going to just divinely take over and, and make you into a, like a God robot that's going to do good. It's like, it still requires your will, what you love, and you can take inspiration from these stories, but that's about all they're good for in a way that's kind of what he's saying. You know, as somebody who kind of came back to religion in, in my life and did so largely to find the benefit of it helping with my depression, I kind of look at it like the vaccine the way they sell the COVID vaccine to us, like you might still get COVID, but it's not going to kill you. Like, I do feel like having religion, I still do get depressed, but it's not going to kill me, hopefully. But uh, the depression is definitely not as severe. I think it's a pretty helpful tool in that way. And when you say religion, you mean the community you feel at a place of worship or do you mean like prayer or what are you specifically saying? Well, it's a combination of things. I mean, one thing I was thinking about recently with prayer is I'm Jewish and I pray in Hebrew and I don't really know Hebrew. So a lot of it is very like mantra to me. I'm repeating sounds that I'm familiar with. I can read the words, but I don't really know what I'm saying, but it's tunes set to sounds. It's a meditative thing for me. And then community. Yeah. Just having a community the despair of feeling alone. I still feel alone even with a community and with a family and with kids and with a belief in God. I still can't shake that feeling of being alone even with all that, but it's so much less severe than it used to be. Yeah. I really respect everything you just said. Yeah. I also grew up Episcopalian and kind of lost my faith and regained it for a little while going to like some 12 step programs. And then, and I wrote a whole comic book about the saga of going in and out of these programs. But I've always been drawn, Daniel, to uh, Judaism. And that's why I married a Jewish woman. I grew up in a town that was like mostly Jewish and um, always kind of envied my you know, bar mitzvah friends and the, the community they had. And, and I just, I still kind of revere some of the traditions of Judaism. I think one of my favorite holidays is just Passover because I just love that we read the story and have a Seder and all these rituals. And we kind of make fun of it and debate it. And it's like that's embedded in this welcome within the religion. And I've never felt that in any kind of Christian setting. It was never like, yeah, let's take this apart and really <laughs> see how it works and make fun of it. And, you know, I just love that. I love the irreverence that Rebecca's family has towards this stuff. It's great. Yeah, I think, you know, my wife converted to Judaism. I like to joke that I converted with her because I was so anti-religious when she started her conversion and I didn't want her to do it or anything. And I was just like, wanted no part of religion. And then reluctantly wound up going with her to classes and screamed at a rabbi, he was a very sweet man. And he was, came back at me 
instead of kicking me out, which is what I was hoping for, with just like incredible compassion and understanding. And it opened my heart up to uh, re-exploring religion. And from there, I feel like I also converted to Judaism, even though I'm born Jewish. So as much as you look at it from an outsider's perspective, oddly enough, I also have. I love that's a beautiful story, man. I love that. So in terms of uh, Schultz here, if he became less religious later in life, it does seem that the later comics become more, maybe not religious, but some sort of contemplative tone poems or something, you know, homilies and not no longer like, let's stick it to him with a, you know, with subversive gags. There's nothing subversive unless it's to such a degree of subtlety that I will not attain until I'm 65 at least. I don't know, does anybody have any sort of affection for the later comics, or is it just all completely forgettable? Like, I could not summon one to mind if you paid me. Daniel Leonard, you dug around them even for your, throughout the history for your uh, website, right? Yeah, there's, I think, some some trade-offs, but there's some good stuff in there. I think with the way you're calling tone poems, there's some more of, like, visual absurdism that emerges, like, uh, I'm thinking of the kind of riffs where Schroeder's piano notes are sort of materialized and Snoopy's interacting with them and they'll like fall on them or they'll like have to board up the like word bubble that they're in or something to, to keep them going. So this is like kind of tension, I don't know, postmodern, but it's like playing with the artificiality of the comic strip as a representation. He does a lot more stuff like that later on. I think there are plenty of like iterations of his go-to beats like pulling away the football or Government Patty getting a bad grade or different kinds of things that are disappointing where even if the characters are maybe less aggressive to each other, the world is still kind of aggressive to them. There's still kind of harsh realities that are sometimes present, but definitely the um, the rise of Snoopy and fantasy taking over is, is something that a lot of people are critical of. And I think in the same way as some other comic artists, Schultz got tired of deferring gratification and sort of like gave Charlie Brown a girlfriend and I can't think offhand of other specific versions of that, but like Jim Davis did that with John Arbuckle and Garfield. And maybe it's just like people have a certain kind of cap after a couple of decades where they want to see what it would do to shake things up if there was some kind of fulfillment. And and I don't particularly like it in Peanuts, but he's at least trying something different and I commend him for those moments. So maybe this is what makes the continued appeal of the property, you know, given that most people are familiar with like those two or three specials and some vague memories of other things is how do you deal with the passage of time? And this is, of course, something that all comics and long running Spider-Man, et cetera. You know, does Spider-Man become 40? Oh, Spider-Man's 40. We don't want him to be 40. Let's have him make a deal with a demon so we can make him not married and younger again. Or let's reboot for the 90th time and say, you know, there are parallel worlds. And if you're DC, you don't give a shit about it. Like I kept track as a kid of like, how old is Charlie Brown? And at some point, like he turns 10. There is some progression because they even have Linus and Lucy in the early ones being born. Like they're not in the early one, but like, even though they might go from being an infant to being roughly the age of everybody else in a matter of a couple months worth of strips, time passes in a very strange way. What do you expect as far as the audience? Like does rerun even exist like this is a character that was not introduced until what the 80s or something who knows like you can't go back before franklin and peppermint patty you can't do that then it'd just be all white and 60s 
but you can't have things move forward too much. And if you try to incorporate current elements, like the 60s jazz thing was there because that's what was popular music in the 60s. And so, of course, when the 80s come along, well, let's throw in some things that sound 80s. And that's terrible. Like, we all want it to just exist in this forever 60s land. I mean, it's sort of a choice you make, right? It's the Simpsons, too. Like, okay, they're never going to age. It's going to be that age for 30 years or whatever. And there's a comfort to that. There's a soothing Midwestern (laughs) comfort to that. To me, it just adds to the sense that this is all taking place in more of like a dreamscape or just a a timeless place where ideas are kind of being exchanged or emotions are being encoded into speech. And, you know, these are little archetypes playing out the grand fluctuations of Schultz's own mind and emotions. Like, that's what we're witnessing. Again, I keep referring to this biography because I loved it and it was so illuminating. I was just stunned at how autobiographical the strip is. I mean, they just over and over again, told what was happening in his life and then showed strips. And it was like, couldn't be more direct. There it is. You know, I'm feeling this. I'm going through this. Like I was saying earlier, I'm having an affair. I'm in love for the first time. Here's Snoopy. He's in love for the first time. Are you referring to the book Schultz and Peanuts by David Michaelis? Yeah, I've been in the middle of listening to the audiobook. Yeah, it's a a fascinating kind of issue, like the passage of time and it's like serial graphic medium where it does like prominently cycle through the seasons and the holidays and use all of that as fodder but it kind of cycles back around to the same year it seems of of school and a lot of that's getting negotiated early on like you said with people being born and then kind of reaching their age cap yeah i think it it just underscores how they're non-literal beings and to the extent that they, they represent the parts of us also that are it's not static, then at least kind of fixed. Like our, the inner child remains a child no matter how old you get. The part that's more vulnerable and intensely feeling isn't satisfied with the ways that are offered by society to, to deal with the things that are hard about life. Just to be able to highlight that, it's essential to have characters with a similar kind of continuity. And there's a different kind of psychological realism because it's explored in strips, comic strips, where the characters themselves age but in peanuts even when they kind of like learn something or grow it's kind of developmental hurdle it doesn't stick the character development just kind of recedes into the ether and potentially be re-explored later on i don't know if any of you knew in the 70s there's this like children's book series called the sweet pickles and it was like an animal for every letter of the alphabet so it'd be like and they all had different foibles of like imitating iguana and like zany zebra or whatever they all had these personality quirks that would trip them up and they all lived in a town and they'd all kind of annoy each other and whatever. And I just love that at the end of every book, nothing changed. There was no growth. There was no like, and now Zebra learns to play with everyone else and be good. It was just like full house endings. No, it was like, (laughs) they're just as irritating at the very end as the beginning. And I loved it. I loved it. So different storytelling conventions, because they're not really stories, I think is what we're kind of coming out that it is serving some other purpose. Any closing thoughts we want to sort of go around, I guess, as my send off in terms of recommendations is go get those like 1950 comics or, you know, you can just read them all online because it's quite different than the thing that probably reached your consciousness as a TV watcher and growing up during more civilized later eras. (laughs) There's decades where I was alive, but yeah, it's some fascinating stuff. 
I did watch just before we got on the first episode of the new Snoopy show. It wasn't terrible. It had some good visual gags. It seemed like something I could watch with my kids and be okay. Whereas I tried to watch that Peanuts movie thing and I could not get through it as a human being. I mean, (laughs) maybe if I had children there and they were being entertained, it would be fine. But it was like watching Dora or something. It was not, was not good. One of the things that you had posed as a conversation topic that we didn't cover that I kind of wanted to was the question of if it's funny. Yeah. And what do you think? <laughs> I don't think it is. I mean, I think it has funny moments and I think there's inherently funny things about life that it explores, but is it funny? I guess now I'm going to go back on, I guess it is funny, but it's not hysterically funny. It's got its moments that make you go, <laughs> but that's about the extent of it. I think. Maybe it's like improv that, you know, you discover, he discovers things sometimes like, oh, that's a thing. It's, it's often relatable. I mean, there are moments like that strip, that first one where he goes, I hate him. That is funny. It's not a great punchline. It's a punchline. It resonates, but it's not, there's nothing hysterically funny to me about any of it, though I love all of it. I know what you mean. It's like, it's not a joke. Like jokes kind of, <laughs> I had a teacher say like, jokes kind of expel their meaning like an orgasm. It's just like over, you know, and peanuts aren't jokes. They're not jokey gags. They're like, they explode meaning. They just get your mind thinking in in like philosophical directions sometimes. And they're so quiet and simple and unassuming that it's like surprising when they hit you hard. And yeah, sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes my kids literally were reading these and laughing out loud at a couple of them, but not often. It's like, Every 20th one is like laugh out loud funny or something. So, yeah, there's something else going on there. It's not just about making you yuck it up. Which, by the way, to speak in a broader sense, I don't find almost any of the funny pages funny. I don't know if other people do, but... No, I think that is the consensus, that it is aimed at an average uh, age of 85, I believe is the... (laughs) I mean... What criteria do you have to meet to get a strip? I don't know if that's still something people get strips in the paper anymore, because I don't know if there is a paper anymore too much. But I wonder what criteria you'd have to meet if it's not funny. And they look at it and they go, well, it's four panels. I guess this can go in. I don't know how any of these people won over whoever the editors of these pages are in the first place. I always find that baffling. As a comedian, if I produce the amount of laughs of an entire page of the Sunday funnies, I would never be invited back anywhere in a set. So cumulatively of all the comics on there, I don't really understand how the decisions are made to run these strips in the first place. I'm glad certainly for peanuts that it was made that way, but I'm always surprised that these ever were greenlit in the first place. All right. I'm going to stop stealing my stand up act from Dondi. Probably don't even know that that was a comic, but it was. It was a very unfunny one. Uh, Daniel Leonard, any final thoughts? The original Peanuts, especially earlier ones, are totally still worth your examination. They're the nice, complete Peanuts editions from Fanagraphics. Feel that the golden age is probably like mid to late 50s, up through late 60s, maybe even early 70s, like around the time of the Christmas special. There's like the, the characters are becoming consistent enough to, to carry some depth and the, the style is becomes more what is recognizable to us today. So we're checking those out. I think 
Peanuts, like Father Daniel was saying about comic strips as a genre, especially today, it just conspires against artistic merit in the some of the kind of commercial trappings what it occupies and with newspapers fading. I'm talking about print newspaper comics mm-hmm. as something that like because of the audience that consumes them, it's kind of inherently nostalgic and not intended to be disturbing. And consider the peanuts started 70 years ago. Like what are the other the kinds of things that are on during that period, like leave it to beaver and whatnot. Like this is just the extent of not marketable material that he was able to include by adopting this form that's based around gags. The point of my website is to show how they're often beside the point where even to the extent that it could get a chuckle, that's really just a a kind of vehicle for presenting life. And as David said, presenting often like really directly observations and autobiographical material, just slightly quoted from Schultz's life with the energy of his, his visual style in the way that he could, the way that he could let himself be real and put it into the world. So it's just about the best comic strip that you could find if you have to find one for being able to say something about life and poor little squiggles. All right. Well, thanks so much to all three of you. Let's do the plugs here. Okay. Go to fairenoughcomic.com and that's where you can get my books. David, you just came out with an album. Yeah, I have a new record coming out. It's called Life Our Own Way. Uh, you can go, you can find me on Instagram, just David Heatley, H-E-A-T-L-E-Y, or go to davidheatley.com to see some of my work there. All right, and Leonard, we, are, we already plugged your site extensively with the opening, so... Yeah, don't need to do any more URL, but people can also check out the book, Peanuts and Philosophy, from Open Court Press. I've got an essay in there about existentialism and peanuts. Thanks to each and every one of you. Thanks for the listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.